Paul's letter to Titus, picking up in chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, when He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. When I have the privilege of teaching or preaching a one-off sermon or message, I tend to pick a lesser-known passage from the Bible. I enjoy explaining the more rare stories in Scripture in order to share a message that people may not have ever heard. And when I teach verse by verse through an entire book, I like to pick lesser-known books like Jude, Philemon, or even this one, Titus. But within these obscure books, there are some famous verses. For the book of Titus, we come across the well-known section in chapter 3. There are verses in this section that you are familiar with. Maybe you memorized them in Sunday school or upward basketball or church camp. Particularly verses 5 and 6 are so profound and recognizable that you could read them, pray, give thanks to God, and close this book and move on. But that's not how a Bible study or a commentary works. And finding the right words to say about Titus 3 was a great challenge for me. Not at all because the subject matter is difficult to understand, but because this passage is so important to Christian belief. These verses are so central and so clear that nothing I will say could be worthy of this passage. Of course, this is always the case when a sinner teaches God's Word, but it becomes more obvious within a passage like Titus 3. From the start, this third chapter continues the themes mentioned in chapter 2. The Bible wasn't originally separated into chapters, so Paul's words often run outside those boundaries. Chapter 2 discussed good works in the home and in the church. Now this theme continues with other ways for us to do good works. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Verse 1. Christians must strive to obey God and whenever possible, the government as well. For example, you won't find a Bible verse that directly enforces traffic laws, speeding, stop signs, obtaining a license, etc. Paul never expl uh, explicitly mentioned littering. John never set a legal drinking age. Instead, the government requires us to live in accordance with these laws, and the Bible tells us to obey the government. Romans 13, 1-7 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Having said all that, the government can be so crummy sometimes, and it's easy for us to say, ah, the political pundits make me want to puke. And yes, politics can be infuriating, but Christians are not supposed to be anarchists. Our goal is not to overthrow the government, and yet I am astonished by the amount of ministries and pastors that are more consumed with politics than they are preaching Jesus Christ. People are so sinful that we need a little bit of government in this world. However, as you know, government people are sinful too. So we obey the rules except when they try to force us into sin. When they pull that card, we have a biblical precedent to disobey. Here are some examples of civil disobedience in the Bible. The Hebrew midwives. It says in Exodus 1, 15-17, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children. Live. They directly disobeyed the government because the government was trying to make them sin. How about Daniel's commitment to prayer in Daniel 6, 6 through 10? Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So the king there forbids praying to anyone but himself. But Daniel keeps his normal prayer routine because that is something good that God would want him to do. How about Peter and the apostles preaching moving into the New Testament? Acts 5, 27-32 says, 
And when they had brought them, they sat them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. We can disobey if we must. But when we do, let's follow the example of these believers mentioned above. Even in instances of disobedience, they did not act out of control, aggressive, or wild. And neither should we. Instead, we humbly obey God and accept the consequences, even if it's jail or execution. Remind them to be obedient, to be, every, or to be ready for every good work, Paul continues in verse 1. Whenever an opportunity presents itself, Christians must be ready to step up and do the right thing. Many Christians give up on doing the right thing because the people around them seem to be awarded for doing wrong. Why do good things happen to bad people, they say? Can you relate to that feeling? Well, hear this verse written by Paul to the Galatians. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Galatians 6, 9. The true Christians in Galatia were doing the right things, while the rest of the church was falling apart and falling behind. Those who were trying to please God might have been tempted to give up, but Paul tells them to persevere in their good works. So you, Christian, keep doing your good things, and you'll have peace of mind that you're obeying the Creator. Plus, when Jesus returns, He will remember and reward you. Matthew 25, 34-40, Jesus said, Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was, uh, I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. How about Revelation twenty-two twelve? Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon to repay each one for what he has done. So Jesus gave us some examples in Matthew 25 of good works that Christians can do like visiting people in prison or the hospital and providing for the less fortunate. And moving along in Titus, Paul lists some other good works for us to participate in. Speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Verse 2. Are these commands easy for you? Do a deeper examination of yourself and answer again. There is a huge challenge in obeying this verse, and nobody gets any excuses. Don't say, if you met my neighbors, co-workers, or family, you would understand why I just can't obey this command. This is a letter to a man about the people of 
Crete. So I can almost guarantee you that your neighbors are easier to deal with than his were. Do you need more information about Crete? What type of people these were? Visit our chapter one recordings. Plutarch, a historian from the second century, coined this phrase, playing Cretan with the Cretans. It means lying to liars. He also said this about the people in Crete. They're always on the verge of revolt. The island is a haven for pirates. These people are dissatisfied and disgruntled. If Titus could love the people on Crete, we should be able to do the same with the people in our lives. We shouldn't hold grudges. We should give others the benefit of the doubt. And we should be the most courteous people around. Why? Paul gives us the answer in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Why should we forgive others and be polite? Why should we be good to terrible people like the ones on Crete? Simply because God was good to us when we were terrible. We used to be foolish. Sure, you might be a super smart person, but you've committed some foolish sins. You fell for things and believed lies. You were led astray and embarrassed yourself. Before Jesus came into your life, you had no understanding of spiritual things. If you ever notice that unsaved people and their worldviews can be unbearable, I want you to realize that you were exactly the same way before Jesus saved you. Your life was a sad state of affairs before God changed you. And what a motivator for evangelism this can be. If you ever think, eh, people don't want to hear about uh, Jesus, so I'm just not going to tell them. Ask yourself, what if someone had said that about me? before I had heard the gospel. Verse 4, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Matthew Henry, a Bible commentator from the 1600s, points out that God would rather have pity on us and save than destroy. Continuing, verse 5, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. This, in my opinion, is one of the most important and informative verses in the entire Bible. Here Paul explains salvation so well. Number one, he saved us. This implies that we could not save ourselves. All credit for forgiveness and salvation goes to God. There is no way that you or anyone could brag about becoming a Christian because God did all of the work. It has nothing to do with man's efforts, ideas, or abilities. Nothing to do with acting good or getting back in church. It is totally a supernatural event. Number two, a person can't do anything to make himself worthy of mercy. Galatians 2.21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, in other words, things that you do, then Christ died for no purpose. If we could earn our way to heaven, then Jesus died for nothing. In reality, a sinner's good works aren't good at all. They are filthy. Isaiah 64.6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. 
We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Number three from that verse, the Holy Spirit saved us through regeneration and renewal. When I was in middle school, I discovered a way to turn an F into an A plus using a red pen. I thought, wow, this will come in hand if I ever fail a test and my teacher writes a big letter F across the top of my paper. There's a glaring issue with this quick fix, however. It assumes that your parents are completely oblivious. All it takes to see if you truly received an A or an F is to look down at the questions. If uh, all your answers are incorrect, of course you didn't actually receive a perfect score. Believe it or not, I'm going to use this silly middle school idea to communicate a spiritual truth. Thanks to our sin, we cannot just slap an A on top of our F score. Instead, we need an entire new copy of the test altogether. We need a redo. But again, thanks to our sin, if we were to get a redo, we'd fail that test as well. Thankfully, God goes further than slapping a good grade onto our failed attempt. He goes further than an eraser. He goes beyond a blank sheet. When a person repents and trusts in Christ, their sin is transferred to him, and his good record of righteousness is given to them. His good grades go into our report card, if you will. Jesus lived out our life on this earth, took the test for us, and answered all the questions correctly in our place. Uh, As John Chrysostom said, he lived in the 300s and a little bit in the 400s, God has not simply repaired us, but he has made us new. Paul uses the Greek word uh, polygonasia, which is translated as regeneration. Regeneration means re, means again, and generation means to make, create, or produce. So a synonym for regeneration would be rebirth, or what we call being born again. Have you ever heard that phrase, born again Christian? In 2020, only 40% of Christians consider themselves to be born again. The phrase comes from John 3, and it is so important. Jesus answered him, Nicodemus, this is John chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. According to Jesus, saying born-again Christian would be really redundant. It would be like saying a new innovation or a biography about someone's life. Every true Christian is born again, and everyone that is born again is a Christian. And birth is a good analogy here because think about it. How much credit can you take for your first birth? In the same way, you can't take any credit for your new birth. Now, you might be wondering why being born is so important. Well, let me explain. Think about the excitement surrounding the birth of a child. We call babies bundles of joy. 
People throw parties when they're pregnant, and we celebrate gender reveals. But as exciting as the birth of a new baby is, as exciting as your own birth was, there was something terribly wrong with it. David explains in the Psalms, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 51.5 Our first birth was natural, and the sin nature was passed on to us through our ancestors, going all the way back to Adam and Eve. So we need a new birth. Not another natural one where we crawl into the birth canal, but a supernatural birth. That's what you need. A birth from above. If you have only been born once, you will die twice. But if you have been born twice, you will only die once. A Christian's body will die but they'll experience life for all eternity. However, someone who is not born again will die a physical death and a continual second death in hell. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Revelation 21.8 To recap... Let's read together these verses about regeneration and the new birth. Ezekiel 36, 25, and 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. How about 1 Peter 1.23 You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So that's regeneration. But then here at the end, verse 7, Paul talks about being justified. He says, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul's brilliant words through the Holy Spirit don't stop at verses 5 and 6. As I said, verse 7 speaks of justification. This is the legal side of salvation. Regeneration is the actual change in work that God performs on your heart. Justification is the verdict he declares about us in light of that change. Every person that is truly born again, God declares innocent. And every person whom God declares innocent will be given eternal life as an inheritance. Unless we think that somehow we did all this ourselves... Paul reminds us that it is all because of God's grace. We have one more section, one more session in Titus the book, and we'll finish it next time in Titus 3.